because I had a pretty good life. I had a lot of friends. I spent a lot of time sitting on the beach drinking beer. Life was good. So it was like, okay, well, if you're going to go do something, it's got to be a masterpiece. It's got to be something like really cool, like really incredible. These folks are smoking opium. Those guys are smoking hashish. There's alcohol, there's drugs, weapons. And I'm 22. I would sit in the corner, mind my own business, and just watch. And so to answer your question, like, like how was Alice born? I was just focused on pushing the edge, pushing the boundary. That's kind of the one thing I didn't talk about. I was exploring myself. I think one of the hardest things to do, and I think actually maybe the hardest thing to do is to learn. The question you're asking, which is, what is a theoretical max, is not a question that that person asked. I guess the thing that I learned was, don't think it's figured out. It's kind of mind-blowing how much of it hasn't been figured out. My name is Rene Morcos. I'm 40 years old. I'm currently located in cloudy San Francisco. I founded a company called Alice Technologies. Alice is an acronym. It stands for Artificial Intelligence Construction Engineering. We thought it sounded better than ACE, so it, was, it became Alice. Alice is the world's first generative construction simulator. And so what that means, it's a software that can take a construction project. So you're building a shopping mall, a hospital, a, an airport, puts it in our system, and it generates six million different ways of building it. it. Builds it with one crane, two cranes, over time, over time, and then figures out the, the fastest or the cheapest way to do it. On average, it figures out how to save about 17% on construction duration about 13% on labor and equipment costs. We spun it out of my PhD at Stanford University, where I'm currently also an adjunct professor of construction management. So I think that's kind of the, uh, the summary of, of Alice and what it does. Well, thank you for doing the interview. Great to be here. It was a joke. I was acting like the interview's over, but I do like the Al. I think Alice is much easier than artificial. It's the A-L. Right, the L. Artificial and the L. Okay, yeah, I'm like, I'm missing something, so... Artificial intelligence construction engineering, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> intelligence construction. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Yeah, but it was, it was kind of like we were always like, I mean, me personally, I was like, I just don't want to build another engineering software or like engineering company with boxes and tables and spreadsheets. I was like, make it sexy. And so can you break it down even easier and simpler? Give me an example of what your technology does. So construction is the, the second least digitized field in the world. When you say construction, nobody thinks of, okay, high-tech, R&D. It's generally a low-tech field. And believe it or not, the way construction is managed today is literally with Gantt chart and spreadsheets. We've worked on some of the largest corporate headquarters in the world for some of the most iconic companies that most people use daily. I'm talking, you know, $1.4 billion, right? $600 million. We've worked on infrastructure projects. The HS2 job in the UK, $170 billion, And all of this is basically done by hand. Believe it or not, when you talk to someone outside construction, people assume that someone is optimizing how this darn $300 million job comes together. And the answer is, yeah, the way it's done is someone sits in a construction trailer, tries to juggle 10,000 tasks, activities in their head, and they go, okay, well, I think we'll do this with three cranes and 12 steel crews or whatever the, the answer is. And it's, it's a very manual, tedious process. And consequently, 80% of large construction projects are behind schedule or budget. Okay. And so are we thinking like anything with cranes, basically you're doing simulations in that to make it more, because I, yeah, that's something I wouldn't even think about, but you kind of build a plan to make it faster and cheaper for whenever they're setting up the cranes to either build an interstate or build a huge tower. They're running into simulations and your thing, and you kind of help them figure out the most efficient way to plan it? Exactly. So there's basically two ways to solve a problem. You either solve it mathematically, so you figure out the slab has to be 16 inches thick, right? That's the optimal solution. So you calculate that. And if the problem is too complicated, which in our case it is, when you're building a $300 million project, you're burning through $1.6 million a day, and you have 6,000 people on site, you can't mathematically calculate what's the right number of people or, or what's the right sequence of events. Scheduling problems are notoriously difficult. They tend to have solution spaces that are a trillion possibilities. The way to solve these kind of problems is through simulation. And the issue thus far in construction has been that there's no way to set up the simulation. That's been the challenge. Like there's no way to tell the computer, hey, I'm building a $300 million hospital and here's how I want you to simulate the construction of it. 
And that's what we figured out at Alice. We figured out a way to do that scalably. That's what Alice really is. It's effectively a translator. It's a tool. You say, here's how you build a column. You need these five tasks and these resources. Apply it to all the columns. Here's how you build a slab. Apply it to all the slabs. Here's how you build the roof. Apply it to all the roof elements. What's kind of really cool about the software is that as a result, you input 25 rules and the software generates 6,000 tasks, crunches them and optimizes them for you. How did you decide to come up with this Alice Technologies here? Sometimes they say that the best companies just happen. That was definitely kind of the case with Alice. I'm a construction guy. First job I had when I was 17, I was an assistant site foreman on a construction project. First job out of college, I went to Afghanistan. Design, built, procured my own jobs from scratch because there's really no infrastructure. So you're the chief architect, chief structural engineer, chief construction manager, chief procurement officer, you know, all the above. And so I started building a lot of stuff, got given five projects, 100 people, 114 people when I was 22, realized like, hey, I should probably learn how the pros do it because I'm really kind of winging it. So did my PhD at Stanford, did a what they call an industrial PhD. So six month on, six month off. So I'd go to school, take around the lab, take it to the field, try out these algorithms. And I kept trying to like figure out how could you manage construction better. Being in Silicon Valley, everybody's using AI to solve the problem. And so I realized that, oh, it's, it's a really complex problem. I should probably use algorithms to solve it. So I started tinkering around with that and realized that surprisingly, like it hasn't been done. And so I spent six years on the PhD building the prototype. Well, I did the conceptual research, theoretical research, then it moved into prototyping. Then we won this competition at Stanford, the lawyers incorporated the company, they gave us something called deferred payment, which means like, oh, we'll incorporate your company and you'll pay us later when you raise the money. And we've now since raised, I think, 55 million. So that's kind of how we got started. Well, that was a quick run through. I guess, yeah, we can rewind and go more depth between Afghanistan and a PhD because that seems like a big jump of... I don't know, if you go to college and you're like, hey, let me go back and do a PhD, because imagine you have to get your master's too so before you've been doing that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's definitely a very different skill set, mindset, and I guess philosophical approach between building things in Afghanistan and doing a PhD. Right. Yeah, I know. They seem opposite to me, opposite sides of the world and literally too. <laughs> absolutely. But I, I think a couple of things, right? I don't know when's like a good time to explain how the, the story starts, but I'm half Czech, half Lebanese. So my mom's European, my dad's from the Middle East. And so I quickly learned that bringing very disparate, different worlds into other worlds could be very useful. And so your assessment of like, yeah, they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum. I completely agree. But I've learned from an early age that the best engineers are probably going to be the ones that have some artistic ability or a gut sense. And the best musicians are probably ones that have a knack for mathematics. To me, it's surprising at how much people are like, oh no, this is the way you should be. Whereas I found the opposite to be true. It's like when you show up and you're different, some people might not like that, but a lot of times folks are like, oh, that's an interesting approach. You're an engineer that likes art or whatever the, the sort of combination is. And so for me, it was a huge change. I mean, I went from Having a driver, a bodyguard, a cleaner, a house, managing a hundred people where I was basically responsible from A to Z, right? For, for their safety, for their well-being, to suddenly riding around on a squeaky bike and doing homework. It sounds like you have quite a past. I'm happy to jump right back into the beginning, kind of you growing up, especially with two different types of parents, it sounds like. It's not like they were from the same country. But first, I did have a question. So can Alice figure out how the pyramids were built. <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> you know. Have you looked into this? Do you know anything about it? You can set up the pyramids in Alice and you can hit the simulate button and she will simulate it for you, right? Yeah, but does it take alien technologies into you know how they actually built it or no? That was the answer, but we've never publicly released it. Oh, you know, okay. but I'm 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 glad we got got around to it. <laughs> yeah. well, I've watched tons of documentaries on it because at first I just figured people did it, but so they're saying you had to move a stone every I think two minutes for 20 years straight because they think it was built in 20 years, which I don't see uh -huh. how it's possible. I don't know if you ever looked into it, but they said even with our technology today, we can still not cut the precise I guess angles of these blocks into the pyramids. Do you know about that? Oh, absolutely. The precision of it is remarkable. And if you look at the size of it, it's also remarkable. Even another thing is that if you look at the length, 
it's exactly one sixty-three thousand four hundred and thirty-ninth of the circumference of the Earth, like exactly, which is pretty remarkable. Did they actually have the circumference of the Earth when they built it? There's a lot of lot of things in it that are incredibly precise. It's 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 a remarkable piece of engineering. Yeah, especially when you take into the alignment of the stars and what they used with that too. So you're like, not only are you looking at our Earth, but you're taking into the universe of however you're building it. And you don't have any thoughts on how it was built? No, I wouldn't be the guy to talk to. We'll talk to Alice later. Yeah, you should ask Alice. But uh, yeah, you know, I'm an expert. I, I mean, I've built in four continents from crisis zone, underwater pipelines, 350 million gas refineries, Europe, US, like uh, commercial infrastructure, industrial, like I've, I've done a whole wide range of sort of modern day construction. I got a pretty good idea at how these projects come together today. But when you look at what they were doing back then, it's kind of mind blowing. So good. It makes me feel good that I'm not just like making that up. So is it, if it's mind blowing to you, then I'm glad I'm not the only one. So. Well, thank you for giving us a general idea of Alice, and I think you gave us a little bit of background, but why don't we even start, you said how your parents met and where they're from, and then you can kind of just take it from there. Yeah, for me, I think that the defining experience maybe of my life was this war that I went through in my childhood. So my father grew up extremely poor. He, he was a shoe shiner when he was 14 on the streets of Beirut. He didn't finish high school. And when he was 21, decided that he was going to get an education. Long story, he spent three days on a train to the Czech Republic because the communists were educating people for free. And in most of the world, you couldn't get educated if your parents weren't rich. And so he learned Czech, of all things, in a year and then graduated 11 years later with a PhD, met my mom, but didn't like communism. Anybody that's interested in communism, there's one place in the world you can still experience it, and that's Cuba. And I went there a few years ago and a lot of the stories that my parents would tell me about suddenly were very real. It's really crazy when you realize that we're all used to capitalism. It's kind of like that joke I like to tell. It's two fish swimming in the water and an old fish swims by them and says, good morning, boys, how's the water? And this fish, little fish swim on and one of them says, what is water? Right? And that's, that's capitalism. Right? We don't realize how much it affects and in my opinion, improves our lives. Right? But my parents escaped communism. My mom refused to be a member of the Communist Party, really was like, no, I disagree with the system. I, I think it's dumb that you can't own anything. I think it's dumb that it's not that you're born equal, but you're going to stay equal, like no matter what you do, right? You're all going to earn the same. You're all going to have the same lives. Where was the communism? Yeah, where was it? Czech Republic. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that at that point in time. So yeah, I have no clue. Okay, I got you. Former Soviet Union. And then like my dad would tell me stories that I always kind of half believed them till I went to Cuba. And my dad would tell me stuff like, there's a line of people. And so you, you're like, hey, what are you guys waiting for? Well, they'll show up. So you stand in line and then a truck shows up with shoes and they just start handing out shoes, wrong size, wrong people. And so people start like yelling, you know, I got a size 11. And someone's like, size 12. You're like, oh, okay, so you trade your shoes with someone. And there's always people that are kind of standing around with the wrong size shoe. Like there's no, you walk in a store, you can't buy something. There's like, two types of cheese, right? That's it. There's a whole story of my parents needing a baby pram. And my dad, because he was not from the Czech Republic, so he had access to commodities and goods from outside the Czech Republic. So he was like, it took them three months of like wheeling and dealing to procure a baby pram. So my parents left. My, my dad told my mom, honey, let's go to where I'm from. You know, I'm from Beirut. It's the Paris of the Middle East. You're going to love this place. And they showed up and then the war broke out three months later. And so the first five years of my life was very intensive civilian bombing. What was the war? When I got to Beirut at 17 to get my undergraduate, my bachelor's degree, that was the first question I asked. I walked up to someone who was an older gentleman in his 40s, and I said, hey, what happened? And the response was, yeah, nobody knows. And I thought to myself, I mean, this guy is evidently an idiot. How can you not know what happened? You know, 11 years of civil war. And then through the course of me living there, I asked several people what happened, and the general gist of it was like, nobody really knows. As we're seeing in the, you know, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, like there's so much misinformation. When it's about life and death, people start, the rules change, right? People switch sides. All parties committed atrocities, right? The Muslims, the Christians, the Druze, like the Israelis, the Syrians, like everybody in a war starts to behave horrifically, right? And so over the course of 11 years, pretty much every possible pairing and grouping of factions 
was the case at some point, and then they switched at some point, and everybody had bombed everyone, and everybody had shot everyone, and it was a general mess. And so a good portion of that war was, and I think it was even harder before the internet and before this was widely publicized, but there was a lot of civilian shelling, airplanes, artillery, the civilian population was subjected to. Hey there, Millionaire Interview listeners. We're going to take a quick second to talk about Hover, one of our sponsors. Have you ever thought about starting your own business, creating a brand, sharing your wealth of knowledge with the world, using your years of experience to create something for yourself? Hover wants to help you take that first step in getting your ideas off the ground. If you have a brand that you've always dreamt of building or a business you want to take online, the first step is finding your domain name. Hover makes this super simple with a clear and straightforward user experience, easy to use tools, and truly amazing support from friendly humans. It's never too late to step up to the plate and share what you have to offer. Getting online has helped thousands of people around the world reach new heights with their businesses. In addition to classics like .com, you can get extensions like .shop, .tech, and .art with over 400 more to choose from. You'll be able to find that perfect domain name for your business, one that's memorable, relevant, and boosts your brand. You can buy a domain, set up custom email boxes, and point it to your website in just a few clicks. If you ever run into trouble, help is just a phone call or chat away. Secure, simple, and reliable, Hover is a trusted and popular choice amongst millions of people launching any kind of brand or business. If you're ready to get your idea off the ground with the perfect domain name, head to hover.com forward slash millionaire to get 10% off your first Hover purchase. You spend your days managing details, scheduling meetings, and replying to emails. And by the time you start on the real work, the workday is half over. You can't go on this way, but it all needs to get done. How can you keep the business running without sacrificing your family and your well-being? We all want to grow, but you need extra time to do what only you can do. You eventually realize that you can't do everything on your own. You know, you need to start delegating, but you don't know where to begin. Our friends at Belay can help. Belay has been helping busy leaders with fractional staffing solutions for over a decade. Belay is the partner you need to help take your organization to the next level with its scalable staffing solutions. Belay intentionally pairs clients with US-based virtual assistants, accounting specialists, social media managers, and web specialists. Belay is offering a free download of their latest book, Delegate to Elevate, to all our podcast listeners. Just text STORY to 55123 for your free copy today. That's S-T-O-R-Y to 55123. Accomplish more. Juggle less. Modern staffing from Belay. I mean, I did not know that it was even known Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East because it's like I'm thinking of today's terms and then you're talking about stuff. The Czech Republic, like I had no idea that it was like communism back in the day. But then you think about it. I just see the country today and I even forget about the USSR. And then you're talking about Lebanon. I'm like, what war is it? And you're you're saying, I guess it was a civil war for, I don't know, give 20 years or whatever. And they don't even know why. So, yeah, it's just interesting. Just because something's the way it is today, maybe 20 years ago, it was totally different. It changed. Like, I mean, Austin, that's the thing. The thing that you call society and civilization, it changes like, I mean, in a snap. And I've seen it. Yeah. And we, we've all seen it recently. I mean, with Ukraine and Russia, like you said, like how quick did everything switch for them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even tiny things like COVID, right? I remember like going to the supermarket and people were like, oh, I'm panicking, you know, buying toilet paper or whatever. <laughs> so it's like, you know. Luckily, I bought toilet paper early because I have a lot of Filipinos who work on the podcast and they were telling me there's a run on toilet paper. So I went to my grocery store and I got like one of the last 12 packs, I think. That was like before they shut down anything. I was like, right when they started talking about COVID, I'm like, why would toilet paper be going out? They're like, I don't know. People are just buying it. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy some too. <laughs> yeah, that's that's life, you know. It changes, like, I mean, it changes fast, right? It really does. And people don't realize it. But like this thing, it's fragile. We're so lucky, right? You don't worry about the bank shutting down, right? Like you don't think about it. You don't think like, hey, I could go to the bank tomorrow and it's kind of like out of business, you know? You don't worry about, oh crap, the airport's been bombed. You're really stuck, right? You're not going anywhere. 
or the hospital's not working or the pharmacy's closed. Like those are pretty serious problems, right? So yeah, I've definitely experienced it more than once because I know I went to Afghanistan when I grew up. Okay. Well, yeah. So what year did you move back to Lebanon? I'm just trying to put an age for everyone would know, like kind of the age and year and get an idea of your timeline here. Yeah. So when I was six, my mom really put her foot down and was like, look, I'm, we're done. Like, this is just insane. We're leaving. So we left. We went to basically Dubai or Ras Al Khaimah, which is a small emirate in the UAE, about two hours away from Dubai. And I spent my summers in the Czech Republic. And then when I was 11, we moved to Dubai. Again, spent my summers in the Czech Republic. I graduated high school at 16. I skipped two grades. And then my parents were like, look, you're too young. Do an additional year. High school had like the 13th plus one year that you could do. So I did that. And then in 17, I went to Beirut and got my undergraduate degree in five years. That brought me to 22. And that's when I made this decision. And I went to Afghanistan. Okay. And so that was 2003, just so we know about yep. the age too. So where were you born? I was born in the Czech Republic. Okay. And you were there for five years and then went back. To, I'm just trying to figure out how long you were in Lebanon too. Like if you went back and forth, it sounds like, yeah, you're moving a lot. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure that out a little bit. Yeah. So I was born in the Czech Republic, was three months old, and then my parents moved to Beirut. And about three months later, the war broke out. So I guess I was six months when the war broke out. And then till I was five and a half years of age, we moved out. So I spent the first five years in this very intense war, which I've kind of unraveled in the last couple of years of my life. Like I'm like, oh, it really had a lot of impact on my life. I didn't realize it, but it affected the entrepreneurial journey. It affected the research. It, like, it affected a lot of things, I guess, without me fully realizing it at the time. And so six years of age, moved to Dubai, 17, go back to Beirut. At this point, it's like, great. It's the Mediterranean. Everything's quiet. Life's great. <laughs> Bars, cafes, restaurants, life's jamming. So I get my undergraduate degree, and then I make some interesting choices. I kind of decide that that I'm not going to join my, my dad had a pretty successful group of companies in Dubai at the time. And I decided that instead I was going to go to Afghanistan of all places. Okay. Well, yeah, that makes sense. And just so everyone's on the same page, cause I'm looking at a map. It's so it's easier for me. Beirut's the capital of Lebanon, right? Or is that's like, right. yeah. So, so whenever you say Beirut, that's Lebanon, one of the, the capitals. So just again, to make it easy for everyone who's not looking at a map, just listening. And so, yeah, so you go back there, you do college and then you get out and you say, I'm going to go to Afghanistan and help engineer some roads. Yeah, I, I was 22. I had this realization that I was going to graduate. And I was like, oh my God, I could do anything I want. I don't know why that was so powerful for me. But I thought to myself, if you're going to go do something, because I had a pretty good life. I had a lot of friends. I spent a lot of time sitting on the beach drinking beer. Life was good. So it was like, okay, well, if you're going to go do something, it's got to be a masterpiece. It's got to be something like really cool, like really incredible. What would that be? And so I sat on a beach for like, eight months and thought about it. I mean, I spent a lot of time every day thinking about what I want to do in my life. If I look back 10 years from now, what set of events would I think, man, that was worth it. Like that was pretty friggin' cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That was the thinking. And so what I came up with is I'll go to Iraq or Afghanistan for a year. I'll go to the US, get into like a top 10 school, finish my master's degree in nine months try to do it at the top of the class, and then get into like Stanford, Harvard, MIT for my PhD. That was the idea. And so that's exactly kind of what I ended up doing. Well, was it easy to find a job in, again, you went to Afghanistan first? Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, tell us that transition, because obviously that's a huge transition from, you said, drinking beer on a beach to going there. Yeah. You have a knack for noticing it. I think one of the hardest things to do, and I think actually maybe the hardest thing to do is to walk away from yourself. Whoever you are, it's defined by a lot of subconscious underpinnings. Whether you're a doctor, a nurse, an entrepreneur, a young college student, a metalhead, a skateboarder, like we have identities that we identify with. And, and walking away from those identities is one of the most painful things you can do. And people don't do it for that reason. And so you're correct. I went from really partying a lot in Beirut and, and having a good time to suddenly, you know, managing a hundred people in a war zone. And you are correct. The adjustment period was uh, intense and I would say urgent. So yeah, but I guess that was kind of it. Like I, I, I sat down and I was like, hey, I've, I've got a comfortable life. But this is it. I've kind of capped out. 
there's nowhere else to grow. And so I jumped into this war zone experience, right? And it, it took me eight months to think about it. I thought for eight months, is this really what you want to do? And interestingly enough, there was one main reason why you shouldn't go to the war zone, right? <laughs> Which is you could get very hurt or killed. But when I sort of thought about it, everything else was like, man, this seems like it's going to be a good idea. I'm going to learn about myself. I'm going to learn about life and death. I'm going to see history in the making. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to become a better person, a better father. There's all these positive reasons. So, so I went for it. That makes sense. And then how long were you there? 13 months. Well, when you're there, are you staying in bunkers? Tell us what country you're with like, and where you're staying and what's life like then. I was not with the army. So I was a civilian. But I didn't have like Army Corps of Engineers or something like that. No, we were private contractors, man. And the official slogan of the company was Hara Construction Afghanistan. Take it easy. We'll build it again. Take it easy is kind of weird. Maybe I'm missing something, but maybe it should have been build back better. Biden would have liked that, huh? <laughs> yeah, he would have. Then I really fucked it up. <laughs> exactly right. The thing about it is like you, you've got to have a sense of humor, right? And we did. You're out there. You're living in town amongst the locals. You don't have to be inside a base. You don't, and like you, at the UN, you don't have a curfew. You don't have to be home at 10 p.m. The bars are insane. Let me tell you about the bars in Afghanistan. What city were you in? Kabul, mainly. But I worked, you know, I had projects in Mazar Sharif, Herat, Kunduz, like I had projects all over the place. So, I, you know, I would fly there, little airplanes, you know, some like half hack, kind of semi crazy pilot who's flying between the mountains, right? Landing on some like, like I remember landing some guys like, Beep, beep, you know, four-letter word, like, there's a donkey on the runway, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. We got to rebuild the country, right, which someone who's experienced the war zone being part of the reconstruction, not the destruction, was, I think, very important to me, right? I, I'm very proud of that. We were part of what pushed back the Taliban, and what I really learned was just a, a very, really evil, in many ways, regime that didn't believe in human rights, women's rights, empathy, you know, like there's just a lot of things that, that were, were misaligned between the way the rest of the world sees reality and the way they do. I'm happy I got to be part of pushing those lunatics back, building a military base to secure security or building the first Windows doors factory in the country or radio towers or whatever it was that I was working on. We had projects with NATO. We had projects with private sector. You know, I repaired RPG attacks on the runway. I built a you know, military base for the British. It was really cool. Like I got to travel back four or 500 years. Incredible country, incredible people. Super proud, very strong-willed. I saw people who were in situations that were horrific, just absolutely horrific. Somebody that had lost both legs and a hand. And they, they would smile and they would joke with you. The power of the human spirit to overcome adversity that I saw there was, was just humbling. And I think shaped really the rest of my life in a lot of ways. It was a very different person coming back. Sounds like it. I think you gave us a good summary, but I don't know if there's a, one or two stories that stick out from there in those, I guess, 18 months that you were there. Yeah, there's like, I mean, so many, right? Let's get a good ball of scotch. And, you know, I mean, the bars, right? Like, you walk into a bar, there's people that are armed to the teeth, and like, you have no idea who they are. That guy looks Afghani. That guy looks Western. That guy looks really highly trained. He's not drinking. That guy is drunk as hell. These folks are smoking opium. Those guys are smoking hashish. There's sex workers. There's alcohol. There's drugs, weapons, right? And I'm 22. I would sit in the corner, mind my own business, and just watch. And some guy gets drunk and empties a, a machine gun magazine into the door, you know? People get into fight. I would really try to not get too involved and just sit there and sip on a Heineken or two and, and go home. But Crazy parties, right? Like everybody's making a lot of money for the risk. You don't know if you're going to be here tomorrow. And there's a lot of stress. Parties that have snipers on the roof. I remember taking a girl on a date that I met there, an American girl, and we arrived at the restaurant and they had a bomb scare. You don't mind, right? Ruth, I think was her name. She's like, no. So we walk in. There's a completely empty, right? And I said, you see, honey, I reserved the whole place for us. Like I walk in the office one day and there's no power. Turn on the generator. We can't. Why not? The diesel's got water in it. It's bro it broke the generator. We'll go buy more diesel. There is no diesel. So I'm like, are you telling me in the whole country there's no diesel? And the guy looks at me like, what are you, an idiot? Like, no, of course there's no diesel in the country. So by that evening, the decision is we're going to build our own diesel station. I'm designing a diesel station. Next morning, I hand it to my foreman. He's like, what's this? I'm like, we're building a diesel station. Crazy shit. 
you're earning so much more than the local population and they rely on you. People would bring their kids who are sick. I'm like, I'm not a doctor, but I can find one, you know? Suddenly, three hours of your day is, is tracking down the only American eye doctor, and you can look it up. There's, I think his name was Richardson. And you walk in there and hand this guy you know, a bottle of 12-year-old Shivas Regal or whatever it was, and he helps you take a look at, at a kid who's, who's injured his eye. You're pumping gas into the car, and a helicopter lands next to you. And this dude hops out and starts pumping fuel from the fuel thing next door, right? You're on a runway and an F-16 takes off, right? You're in a restaurant, it blows up, right? You're driving down the road, a car 200 feet from you blows up. It took me two and a half years to start to kind of recover, equalize. No, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like almost like every day, every other day, whatever it might be. It's like you have enough stories in a few days living there that some people might have in a lifetime, you know, especially people who live in America and have it easy. Like we're talking about in the beginning, how easy life is here. No communism or anything. And you're just seeing all these different types of stories and ethnicities and come together in a wild spot. Yeah. I tried to, to help as many people as I could. But at some point you realize, like, look, I, I can't help 17 million people. The situation a lot of these folks are in is, is horrendous. You come back to what we call civilization, your perception changes, right? I remember the three years after, it was just very difficult for me to perceive what we call our first world problems as problems. And it's faded over time. I've now become more accustomed to, you know, the, the, the problems that we have, but no one's trying to kill you. And so from there, you apply to try to get into Stanford or how did you go up that route and what was the next destination? What I told myself is three strikes or one year. So I had my three strikes, three close calls. Oh, of death? Yeah. Oh, tell us the three deaths and then the strikes and then, then let's move on. I was in a restaurant and the restaurant blew up and it burned 13 people and, and killed one. I personally think that there was a good chance that it was the gas cylinder in the kitchen, but the reason we survived was the restaurant was glassed. Two of the walls were glass, so that force went out and the building didn't collapse. Life flashed before my eyes. That's an interesting experience. So yeah, that was one. Like I said, you know, I, I got a phone call that the boss wanted to see me. So I, I stopped the car and 100 meters down the road, they blew up three soldiers, British guys. Incident with a gun exchange in, in, at night in, in Kabul was, was, I think, also pretty darn close call. So yeah, you, you've got to make some decisions. And I thought to myself, three strikes or one year. And I got my three strikes, I think it was, you know, 10 months in. And so I resigned. I was like, you know what, I, I'm good. I think I, I need to get the hell out of here. And the other thing that I think started happening is a friend of mine said war is a slow trickle out of adrenaline. And it's interesting, it's not those incidents, those close calls that I think get you. It's the every day where you're like, okay, could this be it? You know, is, is that parked car maybe? Like, did someone leave a suitcase? Is that guy safety on his machine gun off? All day, every day, your brains just starts to get really hardwired into assessing and identifying risk. And you start to get this thing called hypervigilance. It sounds cool because your brain overanalyzes everything through this filter of like, can it kill me? But the unfortunate part is you can't turn it off. And you start to sleep six hours a day or five and a half hours a day, right? And yeah, it really wears on your psychology. So it was time to get out. So I resigned and got the hell out of Dodge. And, and I applied to a number of places. I went to USC. Kind of interesting thing, like internet cafes in Kabul, right? It's like you put a pistol in your back pocket and you're sitting there and the guy's got a generator and it's not working. And USC was like, you got to send us photocopies of like XYZ. <laughs> like, guys, we don't have electricity. It's going to be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I got to USC, got to experience South Central. Maybe the big summary of Afghanistan was, if I was to summarize that, I learned two things. One, I really don't want to die. And two, I'm going to. And when you put those together, like I think the really big upshot was I suddenly realized, hey, buddy, you've got 40 years. So what the bleep are you going to do with it? That was the big change. Because I went from like sitting on a beach, drinking beer and messing with my friends to suddenly like, whoa, you've got this really, really valuable thing. You only get one. And what are you going to do with it? What are you going to put in it? What are you going to invest it into? What are you going to build with it? That was the big change. I went to USC, got my math, got it in nine months, graduated top of class, right? Suddenly, for my bachelor's, I was kind of scraping through, kind of C plus, B minus, B student, right? Suddenly, I had one A minus, right? And it was easy. The motivation was there. And then USC's a Southern California, in case anyone doesn't know. So you're there, and then 
do you right from there after you get out you said about nine months do you start doing more construction what, what do you get from there so the plan was to go do this phd so i applied to stanford i got lucky that i got accepted and then you know started my, my phd program and, and it's the thing about stanford that i was really liked was it was like it's the institution of yes you know so i went to my advisor i said hey i want to spend six months a year working like i don't want to be in school for 12 months a year and he was like okay so I said, I want to finish in like three years. He's like, yeah, you and everyone else. Cool. And I said, and I want to get my PhD, but I'm more of a businessman than an academic. And he's like, okay. I was like, really? Yeah. Have a good day. <laughs> so yeah, I started my PhD. And then I kind of did this thing where I was working. Like I basically was working for six months a year and I used that to fund the program. So I was working for this company in Amsterdam. So I was doing this at first six month rotation then three month rotation, but I would fly to Amsterdam be there for three months, and then go back to Stanford, and then be in the lab and tinker around with what I had learned in the field in Amsterdam. And I did that for you know, almost four years, basically. But I think that's one reason why the research was so practical, because every three months, I was back in the field trying to see if this thing was like actually worth anything. Are you interested in business ownership? For many entrepreneurs and investors, their journey starts with franchising in the many industries outside of food, what we like to call non-food franchising. Franchising is simply the better path for many entrepreneurs, and interest in franchising is at an all-time high. Lucky for you, John Austinson, founder of Franbridge Consulting and top 1% U.S. franchise consultant, is here to help you explore the world of non-food franchising opportunities today. John and his team are part of the largest brokerage in the U.S. and have vetted the market thoroughly. Franbridge is hands down the premier source for the best opportunities in the non-food franchising world. They offer every type of non-food franchise, from healthcare to dumpsters, youth soccer to oil changes, specialized senior care to dog training, to insulation and windows. John has served as an Inc. 500 franchiser, a multi-brand franchisee, and he's in the top 1% of consultants nationwide and client placements. And most importantly, the success rates and track records of his clients are unmatched. You can hear more about John's story on how he started Franbridge Consulting on episode number 250 of our podcast. Not only will you hear his personal entrepreneurial journey, but you'll also hear how he helps entrepreneurs find the best franchising opportunities that work for them. Sign up for a free consultation call with John today. And when you do, you will also receive a free copy of his new book, Non-Food Franchising. Sign up at franbridgeconsulting.com. That's franbridgeconsulting.com. And so right when you started your PhD program, is that when you thought about Alice or when did that come into play? I started the PhD and I thought to myself, like, all I want to do, and I think this is what I learned with a PhD. All I want to do is I want to get this title. I want to get this degree. Then I'll go build a company or work for a company. Then, you know, then I'll start doing the real stuff. But the price of attaining this PhD was so high that I reached the point where I wanted to quit. The reason I'm sort of explaining that is that from a deeper motivational perspective, you get these emails once every so often at these institutions. I learned a lot, but I've decided I'm moving on. It's, it's like, yeah, you ran out of fuel. And so I had drafted the emails. I wrote one to my dad, one to my advisor, and, and I was like, okay, I'm done. And, but I was like, you know what? You've been here for three years. No need to panic. Right? You don't need to quit tomorrow. You know, give it a you know, couple of weeks. Go think, well, think about what you want to do next. And as I thought about it, I suddenly had this realization where I was like, you know what? I, I think I kind of like it. I think I kind of like doing what I'm doing. And the difference was that before I was like, I'm doing this so that I complete. I'm doing this so that I get the degree. I'm doing this so that I get the title. Like there's some end goal that was going to make this worth it. And then when I sat down, I suddenly went to this other reality where I was like, no. And I kind of came up with a sentence, which is like, the only reason worth doing something is it in itself. And it was literally the most freeing thing in the world. That alone was made that six years of the PhD worth it. Um, what did you say to yourself? I didn't hear it. Say it again. The only reason worth doing something is it in itself. I go to work because I'm, I'm going to make VP in two years. And then you make VP and it's like, well, I'm earning whatever it is, 140000 a year. But now I'm going to earn one fifty or one sixty or one eighty. There's always that carrot at the end of the road. It's like, oh, I'm doing this PhD because in three more years, I'll get it and I'll have this title. No, I'm doing this because my, I like it. My day-to-day -day is cool. I, I get to interact with really smart people. And it suddenly went from like, oh my God, I'm stressed. I got to finish. I need to get to the goal state 
to I like my current day to day. That was one of the most powerful and freeing things in the world. The only reason we're doing something is it in itself. Because then you're, you're not thinking like, hey, I got to go finish this. I got to get to this end state. Yeah, so what? It's going to take seven more years. I'm in. Hit me. Bring it on. I started to enjoy it. I was having fun. I really liked it. I was working 18 hours, 20 hours a day, but I, I liked the work. And so to answer your question, like, like how was Alice born? I was just focused on pushing the edge, pushing the boundary. That's kind of the one thing I didn't talk about. I was exploring myself. The thing I was trying to answer in Afghanistan was like, how do you become a better person? What is the value of human life? And suddenly now you're in a PhD, it was like, what would it look like if I put every last iota of myself into something? So I was like, okay, well, this is kind of a, you know, let's go try it. The way the whole thing started was I was in Amsterdam, we're building a cruise ship terminal for Amsterdam, kind of a cool project. And the guy's yelling that he can't work any faster, he can't work any faster. Dutch people don't tend to yell. I'm sitting at the table and they're yelling at each other. So I, I was like, you know what? I need a little bit of a breather. This is a bit tense. So I got up, looked outside the window. Then this guy's going, I can't work any faster. I can't work any faster. The structural steel six weeks late. It's 50,000 euros per day. So they've just burned through the profit margin. They're losing money on this job now. And I'm looking outside and there's 100,000 square foot of empty space and six people standing in it. That's when it hit me because the experiences in Afghanistan even though I was 20, what is it, five at this point, I'd been on 20 projects, right? 20 construction projects. And I realized every single project that I've ever seen is empty. Literally, drive down the street on the highway, look at a construction project. Is it ever like teeming with workers? No, there's lots of empty space. There might be like some pockets of work, right? It might be a crane dropping something into like zone B on the third floor, but the other 10 floors are empty. There's no one there. So it's like, oh, construction sites are empty. Why don't I measure? So I measured each four columns with a zone. We took photos every 20 minutes. We did it in, in the Netherlands twice. We did it in the US, on the bioechemy building at Stanford. And would you like to hazard a guess at what percentage of construction site space is actually used for construction on average? Yeah. Well, I'd never thought about it, honestly. I've, I'm, now I'm picturing in my head, especially like road work and stuff. I mean, before, maybe I would have guessed like 20 or 25, but I'm going to guess... It's probably 4%. Yeah, 3. 3% was a number, right? So it's like, oh, wow. And asset utilization of 3% is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah it, it is so ridiculous. It's, it's hard to like, you said, whatever I'm, I was thinking, because there's always highway work where I'm at on the interstate and stuff, dude. It's just tens of miles of nothing. And it's just like you said, like maybe 10 cars and maybe five of those 10 cars, people are eating lunch and just chilling. Exactly. So then I went back to the department. I was like, hey, the number is 3%. Everybody's like, what the heck? I'm like, yeah, it's 3%. And so it's like, okay, well, if it's 3%, could we increase it? And I was like, okay. So I started thinking, okay, well, if you increase space usage, you're putting more people on the project. But the question then became, where do you put them? I could put them in zone A or zone B or zone C. And so I started to realize there's like a lot of options. And that's when I was like, okay, I need a, an algorithm. So we started futzing around with these algorithms. And the first version of Alice was literally, think of a white screen with squares that would pop up on it in various locations. And those squares were like a top view of a construction project and where the work was occurring. And the graphics weren't great, but my advisor was like, hey, go validate it with the project manager. And I was like, John, the, the guy's in Amsterdam. And the answer to given was, I don't care if he's on the moon, go validate it with the person that actually built the job. I don't want you to give me some stupid algorithm that you think works. So I called them up. I said, do you guys want a free week of consulting? Sure. They paid for my ticket, flew down there, met this guy. He looked at the video and was like, yeah, it's buildable. That's when it hit me. I was like, holy cow. I have an algorithm that knows how to build. The graphics suck, but it's a computer and it knows how to build a construction project. So I get back on KLM, flying across the pond, sipping on a Heineken. I was like, holy cow, this thing knows how to build. So got back to the university, realized like, hey, we need to add like labor to it, crews and so on and so forth. Then we entered this competition. We won it. The investors call us. They invested some cash and so on and so forth. And yeah, next thing you know, you've got this company and we've cracked a problem that no one's cracked before. So what percentage could you get it up to from the standard like 3%? I'm going to guess the max that, again, it depends on the type of project, right? Right. If we're doing outside of interstate and everything like that. But I mean... Maybe max would be like 40 or 50%, I guess. Yeah, 55, 60 were the numbers we're coming up with. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel pretty good about these guesses that I'm doing. You have guessed it better than 98% of the construction people have asked this question. Nice. So, <laughs> yeah. Hats off too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Cause I'm pretty handy. Then I'm trying to figure out, like, I'm just thinking in a house, I'm like, well, you can't have the electrical and the drywall and all this, all that's done at the same time. There still are stages, but there are probably certain stages that you could finish and, and they can move into that zone. Like you said, once you started saying zones, I'm like, okay, that, I could, could see how that could make sense. Cause it, obviously there's no way you could ever get to a hundred percent. You're still building it and exactly. so, something has a dry concrete, whatever, you know, or yeah, paint. Exactly. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You're waiting for the cycle times or you're waiting for, you know, right. area to Things be to available. Settle. Or, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. But then I think that the other part of the puzzle is that it's funny because there is someone else in the apartment that was working on something similar. But the difference was that, and that person was two years ahead of me. So it's sort of like, oh man, like this guy's always two years ahead of me. Like, I don't know if I should just quit, you know? Oh, he's working on something that just like Alice, you're saying? Very similar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This this is something we all run into as entrepreneurs. Yeah. But the thing I realized was was two things. One, that person wanted the degree. So the the minute he had enough to write up a PhD, he wrote it up and got out of Dodge. With me, I was like, you know what? I'm actually curious. Like, this is kind of cool. Can you actually get this darn thing to work? Like, will it actually solve calendars? Will it solve cranes? Like, the question you're asking, which is, what is a theoretical max? is not a question that that person asked. You see the difference, right? Because that person's like, oh, I, as long as I can write this thing up and they'll stamp it, then I'm out of here. And then it's funny that that person moved on to a construction company and never used an algorithm to solve any problem ever, as far as we can tell. Whereas with me, my advisor was like, okay, you can write it up. And I was like, hey, man, get out of my way. It's just getting interesting. And then I unlocked this thing called the Operational Efficiency Frontier, which is a mathematically derived Pareto efficiency. It's, it's Basically, a way that you can calculate limited space-time systems. It was kind of cool. But it was literally like one step further. You had to like keep going for a little bit. But that's, I think, the kind of thing about it. I was like, this is interesting. I like it. I want to see what's on the other side. Yeah, because I'm trying to think even the first stage, maybe it's just a one-story office building or something. Then your second stage is trying to figure out like a multi-level or I'm guessing, I don't know, can you just easily kind of say the stages of the beginning thing? Because to give us some ideas of the projects, because, yeah, it's, it's going more and more in my head of like how this could be used on different things. <laughs> the way you want to think about it is that I got to experience something that was not unique, but really, really rare because I got to do conceptual research. So conceptual research is like, well, OK, so you, you want to increase space usage. So what are the pieces of the puzzle? Well, labor, equipment, materials, sequencing, production rates, durations. You're like, okay, well, labor, do you think about that as, as crews or do you think about it as an individual labor? And is the production rate an attribute of the crew or is it an attribute of the task? Install concrete. Is that the concrete crew has a production rate or install concrete the task has a production rate, right? So originally, you're just sort of thinking like conceptually, what are the pieces of the puzzle? Anyone that's listening, the thing that really surprised me is that somehow you think like, oh, these conceptual models have all been worked out. This idea of like, oh, it's all been worked out. Once I finished the solution, I was like, this is kind of nuts. You've got to be kidding me. It isn't worked out. And I went through this process where I was like, is it possible that there's these other relatively obvious ideas that haven't been figured out? And it turns out that the answer is like, yes. I guess the thing that I learned was don't think it's figured out. Like, trust me, it's kind of mind blowing how much of it hasn't been figured out. You'd think, oh, like construction, it's 10 trillion a year, right? Like they must have figured it out, right? Or insurance or health, whatever it is, right? So conceptual research moves into theoretical research. So now that you've got the pieces of the puzzle, you got to figure out how they move and interact together. Steve Jobs, right? He's got that famous thing where he says, like, you realize that the world's built by people that are no smarter than you. When you look at human performance, the smartest person is, is what, 50% smarter than like the average person? The fastest runner is twice as fast. Like there's not that much of a variance, right? The other thing you realize is large industry, like what is it? There's no one in the world that knows how to build a mouse. There isn't. There's not a single person in the world that knows how to build a mouse. There's no one that knows how to extract the crude oil, filter it into plastics, build the plastics for each piece of the, the mouse. Like, and that's what you realize, right? Like there's a little piece of the puzzle that have been solved and kind of cobbled together. Oh, you're talking about like a mouse for a computer versus I was thinking actually yes. like a rat. Oh, no, no, no. A mouse for a computer, right? Yeah. There's a famous example. I remember it's like there's not a single person in the world that knows 
how to build a computer mouse. Oh, yeah. Well, they said Milton Friedman. I think this was his big thing about even a pencil, right? An old standard pencil. How many different components are from different countries and like at least 100 different things come together to make that product. And then when you think of an industry, like think about it. It's like no one knows how to build a pencil or a mouse, but now the pencil interacts with, you know, the supply chain and the rubbers and the, and the erasers and the rulers. Everything's kind of a mess. That, that really is the, the state of things. And when I came up with this idea, I, I was like, is it? Because once you figure Alice out, you're like, oh, how is it possible that 100 million people in the world that work in construction haven't figured this out? Because in hindsight, you're like, it's not that complicated, I guess. I mean, it took me six years. Now I've been working on it for 13, which is also kind of interesting because you realize that there's a huge difference between known and unknown. So if you're working on unknown stuff, like one hour in produces a widget, two hours in, two widgets. Unknown is like one hour, two hours, three hours produces no widgets, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. 20 hours, like... Thousands of hours. And then sometimes you go backwards too. Einstein said, if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't call it research. And the example, that, by the way, that I found was paleontology. So you can look this up. So there's some lady paleontologist that's trying to clean a fossil with a drill. And at one point she goes like, hmm, sniff, sniff, smells like burnt hair. She goes, that's kind of odd. I mean, this thing's like 100 million you know, plus years old. Is it possible that there's collagen in this? No, that, that can't be. I mean, there's all these paleontologists running around decades. They've been digging up fossils, right? Turns out that, yep, fossils have collagen in them. And there's types of collagen like A and B. And I, I'm not an expert on this. And you can learn a lot about the dinosaurs based on the collagen type. And you're like, but how is it possible that decades of paleontology missed this? And I swear to God, I am convinced that there's a lot of other examples. Because if I really sat down and showed you the core insights into what you have to figure out to suddenly realize like, oh, the existing system doesn't really solve the problem and you got to build another system. It's like, oh, it seems obvious. You're like, yeah, it took me three years, you know. But other industries, like I'm, I'm convinced that the way I'm starting to understand the world, and that's the cool thing, right, about going through the journey. It's like, there's a lot of, not even inefficiencies, like things are cobbled together in the best possible way. There isn't some central genius or body or something that kind of figure this out. There's lots of stuff I'm convinced that's kind of hiding in plain sight. Makes sense because, I mean, especially probably in your engineering world, they get very stringent about they've taken all this calculus and understand math and everything. But even like physics, every law of physics eventually has been broken. And it's like, we haven't figured out everything. It could be a layer on top of a layer of maybe we've figured out this, but maybe it goes deeper of like how gravity actually works or anything with dark gravity and whatever else. I barely know anything about these things, but I'm always open to, we have things to solve what they are today, but maybe there is a different dimension that we don't understand that is connecting everything as well. So it's like, I guess being open to that is what you were. And that's, I think most people just kind of get closed off and don't want to go that level of deepness, you know? 100%. I'm convinced if you look at any industry and you hammer at it for a while, you'll start to realize like, oh, Everyone in the industry assumes that this piece of the puzzle has been figured out, but actually, no, it's like somebody solved it this way in like 1983 and, and we've kind of been stuck on it ever since, right? And that's like from a process perspective, but there's, I think, technological perspective, like there's just a lot of stuff that haven't been figured out. And so with this, it was like conceptual research, theoretical research, and then prototyping. And so you, you futz around with these prototypes and you're like, oh, they do kind of work. And then... You build a commercial product and then you go into commercialization, right? But what you start to realize, I've heard it on, on your podcast, right? it's just persistence. Keep banging your head against that wall, right? And at some point, you'll start to figure out, there's this book called, what is it? How, how to Fly a Horse. You know, highly recommended. It was, it was a venture capitalist telling me to go read it. And it talks about innovation. And most of us, right, think like, oh, innovation is this, like, I have this brilliant blaze of a, you know, lightning bolt of an idea, and, and I've now figured it out. But this entire book talks about Edison and talks about a number of the great inventors in the world, and it shows that innovation always looks the same. It's like, you try this, it didn't work. Like, you're solving the next little piece of the puzzle of, of your large problem, and you try this, it didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work. Oh, that worked. Okay, now that unlocked the next six little problems. And for each one of them, you tried like five, six, 10, 20 things. Oh, that one solved it. Okay. And then now next one, five, six, 10, three, one. Okay. We solved it. And then 
that unlocks the next layer of problems and so on and so forth. And, and that's basically it. And I think when you look at someone like Elon, like that's exactly what he's doing, right? The number of hours he said, like he lived in that factory, right? He was clocking whatever, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. So what have you thought of our group calls so far? I like the group call so far. I like how insightful it is and it's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it. One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first group call. And I heard that episode, I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly, it's genuine. And so that was helpful. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a Patreon. Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across the podcast a few weeks ago and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment and at the amount that you, uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling? like a looking for another podcast and yours popped up and I was like, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one and I love how in depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, Mining Key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm in the franchising, okay, right? So, perfect. well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask, you know, you hold them to numbers and so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah. <laughs> you really did start yeah. off with I thought so yeah. too. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon. She was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks. But uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165 kind of comes full circle. Have you heard of a guy named Edward Leedscallon? Nope. Yeah, I didn't think you had. I don't think most people have. I mean, it's been a long time since I got in documentaries about the pyramids and stuff like that, but it kind of led into this guy. They call it the eighth wonder of the world, the Coral Castle. It's basically outside Miami, Florida. This guy's like, let's see, he was born 1887, died in 1951. Actually, yeah, I went to it because I was going to the Keys one time and I, I remember seeing that documentary for years ago. I'm like, let me stop by and see it. Basically, this little short guy, I mean, he's literally five foot. I think they said he was like under 100 pounds. And he'd move these multi-ton coral rocks. And he made basically a castle that's kind of gone to shit down there. No one takes care of it or whatever. But they think that he used the same type of physics that they did when they built the pyramids. And it had to do with magnetism, unlocking something like that versus just understanding gravity as we do today. But uh, I don't know. I, I guess I brought that full circle since I was talking about pyramids in the beginning and then how this guy looked at something different and no one could figure out how he did it because overnight he would be able to build this thing and they're like how did this little guy do that and i don't know it's i guess it's again just being open-minded of hey just because a guy in front of you on your program two years ahead of you was trying to solve the same problem hey i can still try it too it doesn't mean like it's all done there's been maybe like you exactly. said 100 million people in the world doing construction exactly at this time doesn't mean I can't figure it out. Or maybe they just didn't want to go far enough and try hard enough to figure it out. Exactly. The misconception is like, it's all been figured out and it's all been done and they're all smarter than me. Whereas what I'm starting to realize is the reason that you haven't cracked something like huge is not because you're less smart. You might be of average intelligence. The advantage isn't in the intelligence. It's in simply that you believe that, hey, if I keep chiseling at this long enough, right, I'm actually doing the exact same thing that, that all these, you know, all the quote smart people that are figuring things out, trust me, they're doing the exact same thing. I studied at one of the top construction management research institutes in the world, Stanford. It's one of the oldest. Trust me, like all the PhDs that were with me are literally just, okay, let me just keep banging my head against the wall and figuring out the next little layer of problems, the next layer of problems, the next layer of problems, the next layer of problems. And at some point, five years, six years, three years, whatever the heck it is, into the journey, you've figured out enough of those little things that together they've now cracked some larger part of the problem. That's how it works. That book, the How to Fly a Horse, like that literally is a whole book on, on exactly that. Here's something I would point out. Most people think that, but if I found this thing I was passionate about, then I would dedicate 15,000 hours to it. And I think it's the other way around. When you look at my life, right, I used to work 20 hours a day or 18 hours a day, right? I, I've really spent the last probably 13, 15 years of my life 
there's been a substantial amount of work and a substantial amount of foregoing other things to focus on on this disinvention. And so the thing I've realized is there's a lot of challenges it comes with, right? There's a lot of things I missed out on. Sometimes I'm like, no, oh, what the heck? Like, is it really worth it? But the one problem I don't have is meaning. Like the one problem I don't have is like, what's the point of what I'm doing? Like, like my life has meaning. Like this is the thing that I, but I decided that this is what I'm going to put at this point 36,000 hours into. And so I guess what I'm trying to explain is, is you said like persistence and passion, but I don't care who you are. If you are someone that's going to do something for 18 hours a day for three years and you're not sick of it, God bless you. You know, like there's definitely parts where you're like, man, I, I really like, I'm sick to teeth of this darn thing. Passion is what you've paid for and what's cost you. And when people like come to me, they're like, man, I'm not passionate about anything, right? Or like, what's the meaning? If I only found the thing that I'm passionate about, and I always kind of smile and I'm like, mate, put 10,000 hours of your life into something, trust me, it's going to start having meaning. Like it suddenly becomes valuable because of the fact that it was shitty for six months and you didn't want to do it, but you still put the time into it. And suddenly, once you put enough hours where you're starting to get good at it and you're starting to see things that other people didn't see and there's this relationship with it, that's where I think the passion comes from. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the way I've seen it work is that originally there isn't passion. Maybe there's just persistence. And at some point, it's even like negative, right? It's like, man, I really don't like it. But if you push through it, at some point, you will build the passion. You've got to realize that it's the other way around. I thought a pretty valuable insight that I figured out the hard way. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about all these things and not even just about Alice, but you know, I guess people thinking just because it hasn't been done doesn't mean you can't be the person who does it. So I don't know if there's any closing thoughts that you have. hundred percent. You know, I, I, like that's the thing I've learned. It, it's not that you can't be the person to do it. You are the person to do it. Trust me. Whoever you are, if you stick to it and you stick to it for 10,000 hours, like you're going to do it. That's the common fallacy. It's people are like, oh, I'm not as talented or I'm not as funded or I'm not, a, you know, whatever the X is. But no, the main kind of differentiator is, is are you going to put the 10,000 hours or 5,000, 15,000 hours into it and stick to it? And that question becomes a question of fuel. The name of the game is where do you get the fuel to do that? And that, that's really kind of, I think, the way to do it. So thanks for coming on and doing the podcast. I mean, I didn't even ask you when we got started, or I think even on the pre-interview, why you wanted to do the podcast. So, I mean, is there any particular reason why? I mean, I appreciate your story and all the details. Sometimes people have a underlying message or anything like that, but I appreciate you sharing your detailed story and hopefully it helped inspire a lot of entrepreneurs listening today. I think that that's the thing that I figured out. And, and I've raised 55 million bucks and I went to study at this like really great institution, but I think that the, the main thing I figured out is there's no secret. All of it hasn't been figured out. And the people that have figured out aren't any smarter than you. All you've got to do is just pick something and stick to it. And I think if I can share that with the world, then I'll be a happy person, right? Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. If there's a way for anyone to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, shoot me an email, Renee at alistechnologies.com. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Renee. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Austin. Really great to be here. But it's bad when you do it to your wife, though, because then you have to crash on the couch. <laughs> See, I have to sleep on the couch every night, too, man. See, we're the same. Was that helpful at all, Gary? Say no. <laughs> Worst experience of my life. One star review. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm used to those. Wish I could leave no stars. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, no, thanks, guys. It was a really great experience. I feel like there's a lot to reflect on. So, yeah, thank you. And I can connect you with somebody too. Okay. I have connections on that so I can help you get it custom made, dirt cheap. I'll share that with you. Look at that Patreon membership already paying off. Aww, look at that. Thanks for coming, member. Oh, well, I got to thank uh, my business partner. She signed me up because I've been talking about you. Well, awesome business partner. I'm going to have to use that as a plug to tell people to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. But anyway, yeah, thanks for uh, setting this up. I Get kind of the VIP treatment, I feel like. <laughs> well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a uh, question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. 
Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I was just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not? <laughs>